Good morning. How are you guys doing? Yeah? Is that good? I don't know. That, that sounded kind of... I think you guys are doing a little better than that. How are you guys doing this morning? There we go. Okay, good. Yeah. Okay. I know I know. I brought it low, but you guys got a little more energy than I do, I think. Well, it's good to be with you guys. Uh, my name is Alex Seekins. I'm the online and the missions pastor here. Um, and it's just always good to be with family. So thanks for being family. Thanks for being with us. Um, I love just seeing the real and genuine like connections that happen here all the time. Um, it's a beautiful thing to see the blending of our, of our families. Last night, uh, Ruel and Olivia got married, if you know them, uh, and it was a beautiful thing. Uh, Ruel, he's awesome. Uh, he's, uh, his family, they're from India, uh, and uh, Olivia is from Idaho. Um, and so their wedding was just this beautiful fusion, fusion of, of all of that culture. And I love that that's just a picture of the church of families with different histories, with different cultures, with a different standpoint and perspective on life coming together in the Lord. And that's what's happening here every Sunday. Um, so thank you for being a part of just the beautiful union and covenant uh, between those of us who are so different and so very much the same as children of the Lord. So, um, well, I, uh, I, I've noticed something that probably many of you haven't noticed, except for maybe a couple of the fuzzier ones in the room. But uh, when you are a large hairy guy with long hair and a fluffy beard, uh, people have a tendency to compare you to Bible characters. Um, it happens a lot. Um, Dan Doyle back there knows what I'm talking about. I'm sure it happens to him too. Uh, but yeah, it's just, it's just, it happens, right? And, 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 and you can't blame them. It's weird. It's confusing. I'm like, is that, what, are you, what are you saying? Like, is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? I know, I, I mean, I know I could just cut my hair, but I'm not going to do that. Um, and so much so that actually, I remember one time I was in Mexico and it was after church uh, and I was standing around and chatting with some people like you do after service. And out of nowhere, this little like five or six year old boy who I'd never met before in my life runs up to me and wraps both of his arms around my legs and just squeezes me with the most sincere hug I've ever had. And I thought, I don't, I don't, what's happening? And so I, do, I did what you do when a random little boy hugs you and I just kind of pat him on the head and I was like, hey buddy. What's going on? And I'm looking around trying to figure out what's going on. And I see coming up behind him his abuela. She's walking up to me and she's crying, laughing as she apologizes to me and said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. He, he saw you across the way. He looked up and he said, Grandma, Jesus came to church today. I'm going to go give him a hug. And he just bolted after me and gave me that hug before she could stop and be like, don't hug the hairy guy. It, it's weird. Um, but I can't blame him, right? I mean, it's my fault. I, I could get a haircut. It's possible. Um, but, but I would say of all the, of all the Bible characters, of all the individuals in the Bible that you could mistake me for, probably the one that makes the most sense to me would be Samson, right? Cause he's the only one who actually has dreadlocks. I mean, he's got seven locks of hair that he doesn't cut. I mean, it doesn't explicitly say dreadlocks, but come on, I'm sure that they were dreadlocks. It's not like he was brushing that hair out every night. He's not Rapunzel. Um, and we're going to actually spend some time looking at his life today because that's actually what this series, what we're doing in this series, Strengthen Yourself in the Lord. We're spending some time looking at different individuals in the Bible and their lives and trying to figure out how can we find strength as we look at their life. What can we learn about finding strength, about being strengthened from their lives? And that is a vital question these days. I don't know if you've noticed it, but I bet you have, that everybody, the world over right now, is grasping for strength. They're desperately find, trying to find a place where they can find strength because 2020 and COVID, right, like it, it knocked down all of these dominoes. It wasn't just COVID. It's everything that's followed that. We're desperate for strength because nothing feels stable anymore. 
right? I mean, so many of, I mean, I was on the other part of the world where we have another system of taking care of stuff, but I know you guys, when you were here in America, even your toilet paper supply wasn't stable, right? And if that's not stable, there's no strength in that, then where is their strength? Where is the hope? Um, and the hope is in a bidet, I'll just tell you that. Um, <laughs> Dalton knows what I'm talking about. Um, but but there's, we're desperate for strength, and people are going everywhere. David Stockton last week, he did a really beautiful job talking about uh, something that's really common in our society these days, how people are looking to grab a hold of strength. They're, they're looking to themselves for strength. They're trying to strengthen themselves and themselves. And if you didn't hear that, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that message. I think it's very important. But in short, I, I just don't think it works, right? Excuse the gruesome analogy, but uh, strengthening yourself and yourself to me sounds a lot like auto-cannibalism. If you're hungry and you chop off your arm for a snack, it might fill your belly and it's definitely going to wake you up, but you won't be stronger at the end of it, right? You and I are every bit as subject to the laws of entropy as everything else in the universe. In and of ourselves, we just get weaker and weaker and weaker. We have to find strength from something outside of ourselves, and some people know this, and so they look to other things. They look externally to that. They look to things like finances, or they look to things like materials and wealth and investments for strength. And you can hear Tony Mueller talk a little bit about that on Thursday, the uh, business forum. But ultimately, he knows, and he'll tell you, it doesn't work, right? Money is, we're, we're in the worst period of uh, inflation that America has experienced in over 40 years. So the strength of the dollar is less and less and less every single day. And your investments seem just as likely to bankrupt you as they are to do you well. So we can't find strength in that. So some people say, okay, well, let me go to pleasure. That's a place where I can find strength. So when they go to sex or they go to substances or they go to food or they go to leisure. But the thing with finding strength in pleasure is that it gives you a boost for a little bit. But ultimately, what happens when you're trying to find strength in it is you find yourself going back for more and more and more of the same thing only to get less and less and less of the pleasure that you got to begin with. And eventually, you find yourself unable to get the pleasure you got in the first place, but now you have an addiction that is just sucking away from you and pulling out the life of you. So that doesn't work. So some people say, well, what about people? What about leaders? What about this politician that I love that really represents me on the right? Or this politician that I love that really represents me on the left? Or what about these YouTubers or celebrities or pastors? Clearly, a pastor is a good place to get strength. Well, I am a pastor, and I'll tell you it's a bad idea. Why? Because every single one of those individuals is just a man or a woman whose strength is failing them too. And if you find your strength in them, then when their strength fails, so will yours. Don't find your strength in me or David or anybody else in this room or any other human being because we're all failing in our strength. So where do we go to find strength? That is an important question. It is wise of every person in the world to be asking that question these days, and so many are but there are a lot of unwise answers to that question. All right. Um, when, uh, when I was in my early 20s, I was beginning to realize that creativity was really important to me, and so I, I wanted to learn some new media, and so I, I'd never really been a drawer, uh, and so I, I signed up at PVCC for a drawing class. Um, and I was really lucky that the first drawing class that I signed up for, I ended up with this amazing professor. I have no idea what she was doing at a community college, but she was classically trained uh, in Italy. Her name was Catherine Duran, and she was a pretty decently accomplished local artist here in Phoenix and then also in San Diego. Um, and she was really pastoral in the way that she taught. She wasn't a believer, but she was just an excellent teacher. She would kind of see how you were developing naturally, and then she would help you to grow in that direction. And I will never forget our first uh, drawing lesson in that class. She took a relatively smooth ball 
And she placed it on a table in the middle of the class, shined a light on it, and said, I want everyone to draw this, and we'll talk about it later. And so I picked up my pencil, and I picked up some paper like everybody else, and I started to draw. I drew uh, as perfect of a circle as I could, and I left that blank. And then under it, I drew another circle as perfect as I could, and I filled it in, and I left that for the shadow. And then when I was done and everybody else was done, she walked around the room, she grabbed my paper as well as a few other people's papers, and she put them up on the wall, and she said, I'm not trying to be mean, but do these look right? And I realized what everybody else said, which is, no, they don't look right. She says, why is that? And uh, someone said, well, you know, they've drawn a perfect circle for the shadow. But the real shadow on the table, it's not a perfect circle. It's, it's kind of ovally or egg-shaped, or it's really not even those shapes. It's just a unique shape. And she said, you're right, what else? And someone else said, well, they've drawn a hard line at the edge of the shadow. But the real shadow doesn't have a hard line. It kind of slowly fades from shadow back into the light. There's not really a clear point at which it transitioned from shadow to not shadow. She said, you're right, what else? And a few other people said some other things that were true. And then someone else said, well, the ball they've left white, but the real ball, it's light closer to the light source. And it gets darker and darker and darker. In fact, darker than the shadow, the further it gets away. And she said, you're right. So the problem is you've all drawn what you think you see. You need to learn to draw what you actually see. She said, the problem is you all have these gross oversimplifications of what a ball looks like in your mind. You have these biases. You have these preconceptions. You drew an icon of a ball, not the truth of the ball, not what's actually there. She said, 80% of drawing is seeing, is looking, is watching intently to see the details that everyone else misses, and 20% is just the coordination of your hand. She said, the job of an artist is to grab a hold of your perspective and to pull it into alignment with reality so that you can draw what you see, not what you think you see, so that you can draw what is true and what is right and what is actually there. And this, I would say is at the core of the message of the book of Judges where we will find the life of Samson. The book of Judges is very much tuned in on this idea of seeing, of sight, of vision, of perspective. And it's important for us to understand this. The author of Judges soaks every corner of this book with this idea of eyes and sight and vision. Our first clue to this is just the word judge, right? If I put a painting on the wall and I said, can you judge for me if it's straight or crooked, what am I asking you to do? I'm asking you to look at that painting very closely, like an artist who's drawing something and tell me, is it straight or is it crooked? Right? Or what is the job of a judge but to look intently, like an artist, at a complex situation, to look above it and below it and on either side and inside of it and, and under a microscope and to, and to figure out to see what is actually there, to draw what they see, not what they think they see, to judge based off of what is and not their preconceptions. And when a judge fails to do this, when they stay uh, locked into their own biases, their own preconceptions, their own gross oversimplifications, and they make a judgment according to that, we call it injustice. The book of Judges wants us to understand how important it is to see truth, to see reality. The next thing that the book of Judges, that the author of the book of Judges does to clue us in on this, and sorry, I'm going to get a little bit nerdy for a little bit. It's just what you get when you get me. My apologies. Normally, I would say you can check out, but I think this is actually really important to the rest of the message to track with me a little bit. So try to put on your, like, focus, you know, glasses or whatever you got. Uh, but it, there's, this, uh, there's this phrase that repeats seven times in the book of Judges. It says, and everyone did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Whenever you see repetition in Hebrew literature, the author is trying to say, pay attention to this and connect the dots every time you see these phrases and these words. And everyone did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. 
There's three Hebrew words that I want to talk about uh, that are connected to this, uh, to this phrase that repeats seven times. The first is the Hebrew word for I, as in everyone did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. That word is ayin, and it is translated eyes, sight, vision. It's actually also a letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And in the ancient, like, kind of proto-Hebrew, uh, the, the letter ayin is just a picture of an eye. Um, and this word actually appears 19 times in the book of Judges, seven times in that phrase, and everyone did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord, and 12 times elsewhere. Whenever you see patterns of threes and sevens and twelves and sometimes a few other numbers in the Bible, again, the author is doing this very much on purpose to say pay attention. The, the next word I want to talk about is the word for evil in the phrase, everyone did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. This word is the word ra in Hebrew, and it's spelled resh. Ayin, resh is a picture of like a head or, or something like that. Or, and so you kind of get this word picture of, you know, evil being like, like the guy who's looking, who's watching, right? That creepy person in the corner who's just staring you down, right? And then the other thing that's happening, when, when this word also appears 19 times, by the way, seven times in the phrase, everyone did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord, 12 times elsewhere. And then the other thing that the author is doing is there actually, there's a pun, there's a play on words that's going here because the word ra sounds just like the Hebrew word ra'ah, which means to watch or to stare or to look at something. And so the author wants us to clue in on this. I would encourage you to read through the book of Judges at some point in time in a more kind of one-to-one translation and highlight anytime you see words that say, you know, anything connected to seeing or vision or sight or evil, it's going to blow your mind. It's absolutely nuts how much this is woven into the entirety of the book of Judges. And that's what we're going to do today as we go through the life of Samson and take a look at eyes and vision and sight and evil and what the author is trying to point out to us in this book. Um, so that's going to bring us to the beginning of Samson's life, which actually we're going to kind of fast forward past. Uh, suffice it to say, Samson, uh, he was born and from birth, he was committed to the Lord with this Nazarite vow, the special vow that had a number of different facets to it, but one of which was that he wouldn't cut his hair for the rest of his life. Um, and that brings us, uh, to Judges chapter 14, when Samson is, from what we can tell, probably a young bachelor. Um, and it says this, now Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw, he ra'ad, one of the daughters of the Philistines, and the Philistines are the people who are oppressing Israel at this point in time. Then he came up and he told his father and his mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah, now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all of our people that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines, from those people who aren't following the Lord? But Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. This is really important because Samson is actually the pivot in the book of Judges. The book of Judges is a downward spiral away from God. Every judge in succession gets further and further and further away from doing what is right in, in the eyes of the Lord. And Samson is the one who begins to do what's right in his eyes. And after Samson, things get really gross in Israel. Because the book of Judges, it's, 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 it's a tragedy. It's Hamlet. It's Titanic. It's West Side Story. It's not the victory that you thought it was when you watched it you know, on the felt board in, in, uh, in Sunday school. Um, it's a very sad story. And so this sad story begins here when Samson sees this woman, says, I want to marry her. And he goes to his father and mother, says, you know, set up the marriage. And they say, I, I don't know about her. And he says, no, it's right in my eyes. And so his parents, they concede and they set up this marriage. And, at the, and on the way to the wedding feast, Samson begins to violate his vows to the Lord, but not all of them completely. And then at the wedding feast, he starts to try to cheat 30 of his friends out of some money. But his wife 
actually sides with his buddies. And so he's furious, and he storms off in a huff. And then sometime later, we're not told, maybe days, weeks, months, he comes back, and he says, you know what, I'm over it. I'm ready to sweep it under the rug, and I'm ready to just consummate my marriage. And he goes back to Timna, where his wife is, only to find that she's married his best friend. Ouch. It's not a happy story. And he's furious, as you would imagine, and so he goes and he massacres an entire town of the Philistines. He wipes them out. And it begins this downward spiral in the life of Samson of bitterness and vengeance and anger and poor decisions and doing things that are right in his eyes and not the Lord's. And it all begins in this place when he begins to cut out the voices in his life who would say, I don't know, man. I don't know if that's right in the eyes of the Lord. And I've noticed something so sad in our culture that our culture and in every facet of our culture seems to be holding up the cutting out of voices with whom we disagree. Seems to be holding up as a virtue cutting people and voices out of your life. And I know that there is a time and a place for that, but I would say that it is very few and very far between those moments. It is, very, it is a last resort, not the first move. And it's very few and very far between when the relationships need to shift in a significant way. Generally speaking, more often than not, the Bible holds up listening to correction and reproof and those who disagree with you as a virtue. There's even a story of King David when this guy is following him around, cursing him and throwing rocks at him. And one of David's men says, let me go cut his head off. And he's, you know, I mean, if I were David, I'd be like, yeah, okay, good. I don't like him. He's throwing rocks at me. But that's not what David does. David said, no, leave him because if he's cursing on behalf of the Lord, then let him do it then it's right. But if it's not from the Lord, then they'll fall to the ground and the Lord will vindicate me. This is what the Bible holds up more often than not as a valuable lesson. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't figure out the minutia of a complicated situation. And I'm not saying everybody who likes Samson's parents says, hey, I think the Lord is saying this. I'm not saying they're all right. What you need to do is you need to take those things to the Lord and say, God, is this truth? Is this correction from you? What do I need to do with my relationship with this person? How does that need to move forward? But God, what is right in your eyes? Not my eyes, not just their eyes. And how do I listen to this? Because they might just know what I don't know. And if we cut all those voices out, everybody out who would disagree with us, we build for ourselves a dangerous echo chamber that allows us to confidently go down really painful, really disgusting, really deadly routes. Uh, and, and what I would say to you guys, because I, I'm someone who, in, in my natural man, my tendency is towards arrogance and towards thinking that I'm right. That's probably one of the bigger weaknesses just in, in my flesh. And a couple of things that I've learned that have been really helpful for me along these lines. Uh, one is, is give permission to the people in your life who you know are trying as best they can to live according to what's right in the eyes of the Lord. Give them permission to correct you, to, to say, I don't know if I agree with you, and then prove to them that they have that permission by the first time they come to give you correction, don't freak out on them. Don't get angry. Don't ignore them. Say, I, I don't, I'm not sure that I agree with you, but I hear you, and I'm going to take this to the Lord and see what he says. And then actually do it. The other thing that's been really helpful for me, because I always think I'm right and I always think you're wrong, um, it's just, I'm just being honest. It's true not good, but it's true, is, is I've learned that anytime I'm sitting across the table from someone who's disagreeing with me or who's, uh, you know, trying to correct me or say that they think I'm off, and I'm not saying I always do this, I'm sorry to all of you that I have not done this with, but, but I've learned to just sit there and say, okay, what does this person know that I don't know? And try very hard to understand that, to wrap my mind and my heart around that, and then take it to the Lord and say, is this right? Am I right? Is there something in between that's right? 
Um, and so we'll, we'll keep going in the life of Samson. So then uh, we skip down a little bit in the story of Samson to Judges chapter 16, verse 1. And it says this, and it says, Samson went to Gaza, which is the town of the Philistines, and there he saw, he ra'ad, a prostitute, and he went into her, he slept with her. The Gazites, who were, who were Philistines, they were told, uh, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night saying, let us wait to the light of morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose, and he took hold of the doors of the gates of the city and the two posts, and he pulled them up, bar and all, and he put them on his shoulders, and he carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. So what's happening is Samson ra'az ra. Samson is staring at evil. He sees this prostitute, then he decides to sleep with her, and somehow the Philistines find out that Samson is, is in Gaza, and so he finds out somehow, wakes up in the middle of the night, goes to the, to, the, to the gate where they've set an ambush for him, and he wrecks the gate. He totally levels it, destroys it, picks it up, and leaves the city of Gaza vulnerable, and he escapes the consequences of his sin. And this is not a victory, I would say. This is a tragedy. Because Samson, like you and I, has become a master at avoiding the consequences of his sin. And when we kick the can of the consequences of our sin down the road, it's not a good thing because it's not dealing with him. It's not going to Jesus for his mercy. It's just sneaking around. And we're all masters at this, right? Like I, like I remember as a kid, I, I, probably you're not as weird as me, so you probably don't have a story like this, but you have, probably have a story where you hid what you did from your parents. I remember I had this weird neighbor kid uh, who was my best friend growing up who just his favorite thing in the world to do was to go to the bathroom outside. Um, whether it was one, whether it was two, it was just like, I'm a free man and this is, this is my world, you know? And I was so curious. I was like, man, what is that like? This sounds so freeing. And so one day I told my mom I was gonna go play outside. I was like, just shut the door, mom. I'm just gonna go play outside. Um, and I snuck around to the front and we had these big old bushes in the front yard and I just made a little deposit there. And, um, and I thought I'd be able to sneak around and get away with it, you know? But at some point in time, you know, the, it stinks. Um, and it becomes obvious. And I thought by hiding it, I could kick the consequences. I don't know, that's sin, but you know, let's call it sin for the metaphor, right? I thought I could kick the consequences down the road, but it came for me eventually, and I got in trouble. We're so good at this. We learn this as children, but also as adults, we continue to avoid the consequences of our sin. And as a society, we have pulled together for hundreds, really for thousands of years to figure out how we together can avoid the consequences of our sin. We could talk about the way we do this as individuals or as a society with dozens or hundreds or thousands of different sins and avoiding the consequences thereof. But I'm going to just hone in on one little area, on one little sliver, just to make the point. When it comes to sexual immorality, we have mastered avoiding the primary consequences, particularly as a society, but very much so as individuals, right? What are the primary consequences of sexual immorality? Well, two of them would be STDs and pregnancy that we weren't looking for, right? And if, and if you end up with an STD because you've slept with someone that you weren't supposed to sleep with, don't worry, that's okay. We have treatments for it. We have a cure for it or a way to mitigate the symptoms. We can handle that. I'm not saying medicine's bad, but I'm saying it's not a victory that we've learned to wiggle our way out of these consequences. Right, or if you sleep with someone that you shouldn't be sleeping with, one of the primary consequences would be a pregnancy and ultimately a life that needs to be cared for. But as a society, we've learned how to deal with that, haven't we? We have prophylactics, we have birth control, we have a pill that can wash the life out of you before it implants. 
And if you don't go to any of those or if any of those fail, we, we still know how to take care of it afterwards when the life is growing inside, don't we? And then the result is you never have to take care of that life. And we avoid the consequences of our sin. And I, and I, just, I just wanna take a moment and acknowledge that this is not a victory, it's a tragedy. And I, and I know, it's, just, it's so important for us to realize that we're not talking about a political idea, we're talking about human beings. And I know that there are people in this room that have avoided the consequence of that sin and that very method and so many others. And I just wanna give you permission to grieve this tragedy and to let go of the part of yourself that has been trying to call it a victory. And I also wanna say, I know church can be a really scary place to confess things like this. It might feel like the last place you can tell people that I went there. But church is a place full of people who are failures and who have been desperately avoiding the consequences of their sin for so long, and yet we've figured out that we can deal with it in Jesus. That Jesus' blood can wash away the most perverse, the most tragic of any of our sins. And if you're in a place where you've just been shoving down the reality of how you have avoided the consequences of your sin, I just, I, I just wanna take a quick minute here, and as I know this is weird in the middle of the sermon and not the end of it, I just wanna pause. And I just wanna invite you to grieve with the Lord and to acknowledge his mercy. We're gonna take just like one minute and just do some business with the Lord. Maybe it's this specific sin, maybe it's another sin, um, but just go to the Lord and grieve the fact that you've avoided your sin and invite him to deal with it, with his mercy. Uh, Bethany Hall had this word just before I came up this morning about um, the Lord having new life and new mercies for us, about scales falling from our eyes. And I, and I, just, I just want us all to hear, and I, I feel like the Lord is saying there's even some very specific people in this room who are trying desperately not to think about the things that we're talking about right now. And I just feel like the Lord is saying it's safe to think about that. It's safe to go into this space because I have forgiven you, because I love you, and because I am taking care of the consequences of your sin. You don't need to avoid them anymore. Um, so I know that's a heavy place, um, but I think it's important for us to recognize that the Lord can deal with those things and that we don't have to avoid them. Um, so we'll keep going in, in the life of Samson, right? Uh, so the very next verse, we go from Samson eyeing Ra, seeing this prostitute and sleeping with her and dealing with the con consequences thereof. And now very next verse, it says, after this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. Um, that's all the singing I'll do, or my wife. Well, she's a much better singer than me. Let's just put it that way. Um, 
so uh, whose name was Delilah, and the lords of the Philistines, they came up to her and they said, seduce him, and what? Ra'ah, where his great strength lies. See where his great strength lies. And by what means we may overpower him that we may bind him to humble him. And so what happens, we go from the story just before this one, Samson is ra'ing ra, where he's staring at evil, and now ra is ra'ing him. Now evil is staring wantingly back at him. If you stare wantingly at evil long enough, eventually you will find evil staring wantingly back at you. The way God puts it when he's speaking to Cain is sin is crouching at your door, and its desire is to devour you. Uh, and we know how the rest of the story goes, right? This is the most famous part of the story of Samson and Delilah, right? So they start having an affair together, Samson and this woman. Uh, and, and then she says, okay, Samson, tell me how, just hypothetically speaking, just curious, how could one, you know, maybe tie you up and defeat you if they wanted? Just, just wondering. And he, so he makes something up and he says, well, if you tie me up this way, then, then, then I wouldn't be able to get out and I could be defeated. And, and so she waits till he falls asleep and she ties him up in that way. And then she says, oh no, ironically on the night when I was just testing out what you said, the Philistines showed up and they wanted to defeat you. And he lied to her, so he busts out of the bonds and he, you know, demolishes the Philistines and he escapes and he's fine. And then she's like, why did you lie to me? And he's thinking, well, yeah, because you, you're, it's a little obvious, transparent, your skills here. But so she, she pesters him until eventually he says, well, okay, if you tie me up in this way, he makes up another life. Tie me up in this way, then I won't be able to get out. And so she does it again. Three times this happened, and three times, you know, he breaks out, and, and she's really angry. The fourth time, she, or the third time, she's furious with him, and she says, tell me the truth. And so Samson makes something up again. Now, I think you and I probably have read this thinking that Samson gives her his kryptonite, that he knows that if you cut my hair, I'll lose my strength. I don't think that he knew that by the way he reacts. I think he just hit a point where his vow before the Lord meant nothing to him. Why? He's not stupid. He knows he says, if you cut my hair, then I'll lose my strength, that she's going to cut his hair that night because that's what she's been doing. I just don't think he cared. I just don't think his connection to the Lord meant anything, and he was willing to sacrifice that last little connection between him and God. And so she gets him to fall asleep on her lap, and she cuts his hair, and there's no kitchen chair involved. Um, let that sink in for a second. It's a good song. Um, so she cuts his hair, and then ties him up, and then this is where we pick up. In verse 20, it says, And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And I would say perhaps because he had left the Lord. And the Philistines seized him and they gouged out his eyes. And they brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. If we fail to see through the eyes of the Lord, eventually we will fail to see altogether. And like Samson, we will become blind because we have been living according to what is right in our eyes. And then the story goes on from there, right? The Philistines, they, they bind him, they take him prisoner, they take him to the temple of their god, Dagon, and, and, and they're having a giant party. We're told there are thousands of them up on the roof of this temple, and they're doing what? They're eyeing Samson. They're looking and watching Samson because he is the entertainment for the night. And eventually he gets tired, and so he gets someone to bring him to the two pillars at the center that are load-bearing in the temple. And he rests on them, and in that moment, he cries out to God. And he said, Lord, will you restore my strength? In that moment, he comes back to the God that he had walked away from step by step by step over the course of his whole life. 
And if God were like you and me, he would say, forget it, dude. I left you because you left me. You've walked away. You've turned your back on every ounce of the relationship and the covenant that we had. But that's not what happens, and this is good news. Samson is the worst character. He's certainly the worst judge in the book of Judges, and yet God does not ignore him. When Samson turns around and says, God, I'm, I just would you please come back? God hears him, and he is strengthened in the Lord. The Lord strengthens Samson when he returns to him. And I would just say this, it does not matter how far you have walked away from Jesus. It does not matter what sin you have done. It doesn't matter how gross and despicable you have become. It doesn't matter how long you've been living your life according to what is right in your eyes and how deep into depravity that has taken you. The Bible is full of good news because Samson is not a good guy. He's a really bad guy who really messed up. And it wasn't just oops. It was really bad stuff. And the good news is that God would hear him and God would use him. And if God would hear Samson, if God would strengthen Samson, if God would continue to use Samson, then we're good. And God will hear you. He will use you. He will be with you. The mercy of Jesus is sufficient for your sin. And the strength that we're looking for can only be found in Jesus and his forgiveness. We are weakened by our own failures and by living according to what's right in our own eyes, but we find strength in repentance and in turning to the Lord. We are an army that marches on our knees as we cry out to Jesus. And we need him desperately. Because no strength anywhere else in this world can sustain us the way Jesus can. And I, and I would just say, wherever you're at, if you've been living according to what seems right to you, come back to Jesus. Ask him what's right in his eyes. I think those of us who are, have been walking with Jesus for a long time are every bit as susceptible as those who've never walked with him yet. We're every bit as susceptible to trying to live according to what's right in our own eyes. Come to Jesus, ask him what's right. Something that's been really helpful for me is, is grandma advice. It's as good as it was 70 years ago when grandma heard it. Read your Bible, pray, and go to church. Good job on, on the go to church bit, because you guys are here, if you didn't realize that. Read your Bible because it is full of the perspective of the eyes of the Lord. Pray because it's how you actually go and talk to the Lord and you listen to the Lord. You say, God, somebody told me this. I don't know if it's true or if it's right. God, I have this thought. I don't know if it's true or it's right. What's true, what's right, what's good in your eyes, in your perspective, Jesus? Will you tell me? God, can I listen? I'm just confused. I'm lost. I'm just going to wait and be silent. And will you tell me what's right in your eyes? That's prayer. And then go to church because we're all a bunch of messed up people who've all failed and yet... Many of us here have found mercy in Jesus. And we found that we can climb out of the hole that we dig by doing what's right in our own eyes as we begin to say, well, what might God think is right in his eyes? We've tried to learn to draw what we see and not what we think we see, to live according to what's true and not what we think is true. Let's take just a moment really quick here and let's, let's pray before wrapping up all the way. And let's just listen. 
just want to encourage you to ask the Lord, God, have I, have I been living according to what's right in my own eyes? Have I been too stubborn or prideful or blind or twisted and depraved to see what's right in your eyes? God, keep my heart soft to the people who care about me enough to tell me when they think I might be out of line with what's right in your eyes. Give me wisdom to know when they're pointing me in your direction and when they're not. But keep us humble and walk with you. Yeah, I just, I want to invite you guys to connect with the Lord this morning. To bring your heart to him and say, search my heart, Jesus. Tell me what's right in your eyes. Maybe you're like Samson and you feel like you are so deep that you are literally enslaved by your own blindness that you have no idea. It's like you're, you're like under the waves and they're just crashing over you and you literally don't even know what's way, what way is up anymore. The only hope that you have is to say, Jesus, what, what way is up? David felt like the Lord was moving through that song that said, when I, when I thought I lost you. Uh, what does it say? When I thought I lost you. I, I'm gonna just read it. I'm not as good with lyrics. When I thought I lost me, you knew where I left me. You reintroduced me to your love. You picked up all my pieces and you put me back together. That's Jesus. You might be lost, but he's not lost. You might be disoriented and confused, but he's not. So maybe it's coming up to the front. Maybe it's sitting where you are, but wherever it is, I just want to invite you to do business with the Lord, to talk with the Lord, to invite him to search you and to say, tell me where I'm wrong and meet me with your mercy. I want to give you the consequences of my sin because I know you took them. I know you bled for me. Let's just do that now in this space.